imitating Christ's humility. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one and one of mind and of one mind. <clears throat> Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. So it'd be really helpful if you have your Bibles uh, open to Philippians 2, 1 to 11, or uh, your Bible app or whatever it is uh, that you use. So I want you to think of the worst job that you can imagine, maybe something like a portable toilet cleaner, or um, if we look further afield, uh, there are developing countries all over the world uh, where people scrape a living together collecting reusable rubbish from rubbish heaps. Uh, I watched a short documentary about uh, one such rubbish heap in uh, Phnom Penh. At one point, the narrator said, it's degrading, dangerous, and bad for your health. Now imagine being asked to give up your high position and go and do that job for the rest of your life. And you might say, well, I don't have a high position. And if, we, if, if that's how we're thinking, then probably uh, we need to spend some time in developing countries and see uh, what real poverty uh, looks like, witness it firsthand. Uh, but if, imagine if we were asked to give up our life here in Australia to go and scavenge on rubbish heaps in Cambodia. And I don't mean uh, for a few weeks as an experiment, like one of these um, uh, reality TV shows, but for the rest of our lives. What could possibly motivate us to do that? And you're probably thinking, nothing could motivate me to do that. That would be awful. Uh, now imagine that you were shown the most depraved person conceivable. Let's say he's serving a life sentence for the most heinous crime uh, in a dingy prison in Siberia. And this person is completely unrepentant, 
Selfish, surly, foul-mouthed, obnoxious. There's absolutely nothing about this man that would make you like him. And you were told, if you relinquish your comfortable life here in Australia and go and work on a rubbish heap in Cambodia, you could potentially bring that man to repentance and change his life and character beyond all recognition. But there's also a good chance that he'll just mock and curse you. How many of us would give up what we have to help that man? That's a rhetorical question because the answer is none of us. None of us would really do that. Go to those extremes for that one individual. Yet what I've just described is merely the fainter shadow of what Jesus has done for each one of us. He gave up all the glories of heaven, all the power and majesty of his divine position to become one of us. Uh, in, in that documentary I mentioned, the uh, narrator said that the work was degrading, dangerous, and bad for your health. Uh, well, the role that Jesus took on certainly fits that description. He ended up being crucified. Crucifixion is very definitely bad for your health. And he did it for the worst of sinners. He did it for you and me. He did it for those who have perpetrated the most heinous crimes. And he did it for those who would continue to mock and curse him. As it says in Romans 5.8, But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sent his son to die for us. And I've heard people say, well, that sounds like kind of divine child abuse. Who, who would send their son to die? But this passage makes it clear that Jesus is in every way God. It says in verse 6, who being in very nature God. Last week we looked at the uh, Trinity, and we're not going to go into too much detail with this, but we believe that God is made up of three persons. God the Father is 100% God. God the Son, Jesus, is 100% God, and God the Holy Spirit is 100% God. Three persons, but only one God. So Jesus is fully God, but he is also fully human. When Jesus came into the world, he was not some kind of new being. He was human in every way. When Jesus was a newborn baby lying in a manger, he didn't have more awareness or knowledge or power than any other newborn baby. All he could do was lie there, helpless and vulnerable, waiting to be fed. He could eat, sleep, cry, poop. He could move his arms and legs and head around in an uncoordinated way. That's all he could do, just like any other newborn baby. I find it mind-blowing to think that the creator of the universe once wore nappies or the first century equivalent. But this is the miracle of the incarnation. God became fully human. The helplessness of Jesus as a baby and the human limitations of Jesus as a man is often called the self-limitation of God. I mean, when we read the gospel, sometimes it's tempting to think of Jesus as a kind of superhuman. We imagine that he knew everything that God knows. He didn't. 
He even said as much uh, when the disciples were asking about the events that Jesus was talking about. He was talking about the end times. The disciples said, when will this happen? And Jesus said, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Jesus didn't know everything that God the Father knows. In a sense, he was limited by the capacity of his human brain. When we read that Jesus knew what people were thinking, for example, in Luke 5, when the Pharisees were inwardly critical of Jesus because he forgave a man's sins, it says this, Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, what do you th- uh, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? We read this and we think, ah, Jesus read their minds. And in a way he did, but not literally. Jesus was intelligent, astute, observant, and most of all, he was attuned to the Holy Spirit in a way that no one ever has been. But he wasn't a literal mind reader, because that's a, that's a, that would be a superhuman ability. You might say, yeah, but Jesus walked on water. No man could ever do that. But Peter did. Matthew 14, reading from verse 29, Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. He didn't sink because he wasn't God. He sank because of his understandable lack of faith. Verse 31, Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? Jesus was able to do the things that he did because he was the perfect man and he had the perfect relationship with God the Father. We must understand that Jesus was fully human, not superhuman, but human. But, this is a big but, he's also fully God. He's also fully God. Verse 7 says, he made himself nothing. And the word that's been translated nothing has to do with the emptying out of something. God emptied himself, but he was no less God. Uh, During the Last Supper, Jesus took off his outer garments and he wrapped a towel around himself just before he washed the disciples' feet. And this is uh, deeply symbolic. The outer garment, for want of a better word, represent the trappings of being God. Omniscience, knowing everything. Omnipotence, being all-powerful. Omnipresence, being everywhere at once. God the Son divested himself of those attributes, and he clothed himself with humanity, which is represented with the towel. So when he takes off those outer garments, he's divesting himself of those uh, uh, some of the attributes of God, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence. And he puts on the towel, and that represents he's taking on our humanity. It's wonderful, and it's mind-boggling to think that Jesus was and is fully human, but also fully God. In Jesus as well, we get to see the true character of God. Verses 6 to 7 say this, Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. To our human way of thinking, being the man whose identity is God 
should come with some perks, right? But it didn't. Jesus didn't use his equality with God to his own advantage. This is so different to the way that people normally behave. Uh, One of the most obvious symptoms of sinfulness is selfishness. So often people will try to gain an advantage for themselves at the expense of others. And I think that's what um, Paul means when he talks about selfish ambition. And time and again we see people in positions of power abusing their authority. Uh, I read about Mexico City's former attorney general for consumer protection who closed down a restaurant based on a complaint made by his daughter. Apparently, uh, they didn't seat her at the table she wanted. Or or get this, a mayor in uh, Florida was caught using uh, handicapped parking permits of people who had died, and they just kept the permits going and so they could park for free. That's a mayor. In the UK, just before we came to Australia... It came to light that uh, politicians, a lot of politicians, were making outrageous expense claims. Among them were parking fines, plants for hanging baskets, nappies, the tuning of a piano. Uh, My personal favorite, £1,645, was claimed for a little island featuring a wooden house to accommodate the ducks in a politician's pond. As taxpayers, how would you feel about paying for a politician's glorified duck house? (laughs) Beggar's belief. Now, I'm not saying that all leaders are dishonest. My point is, when human beings get a little bit of power, they tend to use it to their own advantage in one way or another. Jesus who was and is God, who has always been been God, has limitless power, and yet he gave it up. And yes, he performed miracles, but never to his own advantage. There are two occasions in the Gospels where Jesus would have benefited enormously from a miracle. The first is uh, when he was uh, close to total starvation at the end of 40 days uh, in the wilderness, and the devil tempted him to turn stones into bread. He didn't do it. And when he was hanging on a cross in agony, Jesus could have got himself down, but he didn't. He didn't resort to a miracle on either occasion. When when they came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter pulled out a sword and lopped off the ear of the high priest's servant. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, reading from Matthew 26. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Jesus could have saved himself. He didn't. Jesus became a servant and his greatest act of service was to die on a cross for you and for me. He knew what he came to do. He knew what his destiny was, and he didn't try to resist or avoid it. Verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. God revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ is so different from the God that people often imagine. Many people see God as a kind of celestial policeman who's trying to catch us out and wants to punish us. 
Uh, perhaps they have a latent knowledge of their own sin and they fear that God is angry with them. We're going to look at that a bit next week. And sin does carry consequences. The ultimate consequence of sin is death and separation from God, but that's not what God wants for us. That's why he became flesh. He became one of us. He took on mortality so that he could die in our place. But if we think that God is just angry, then we'll hide from him. Uh, When I was about 12, I had a huge fight with my brother. My parents had left us at home alone. I don't know what my brother did to upset me, but it really upset me. And I frisbeed a plate at his head. It still had a sandwich on it. And uh, luckily, he ducked. And the plate went through the patio window. And then uh, a big fight ensued. It went on for quite a long time. And at one point, I charged up my brother with a rocking chair. And he got out the way. I kept going. And it went through the front window and onto the lawn. And then we stopped. And my, we looked around. My brother looked at me. He said, you are in so much trouble. I'm out of here. And he left. And I looked around at all the carnage and I thought, I've got to hide from my parents for a very long time. (laughs) So I got some food and water and a sleeping bag and I went up into the loft. And eventually my parents came home, I could hear them, and I thought they'd be so angry. But they weren't angry at all, they were just worried. And even when I poked my head out of the loft hatch, uh, they weren't angry, they were relieved. Their predominant emotions were love and concern, not anger. Now, I'm pretty sure most uh, parents wouldn't, or a lot of parents certainly wouldn't deal uh, with that situation quite so calmly. Uh, But my parents' response gave me a little glimpse of how God must feel about us. If you've ever thought of God as a kind of angry enforcer, remember that he loves us so much that he gave up all the glories of heaven became a man, humbled himself, and allowed himself to be the subject of sickening mockery, abuse, torture, and violence. And he did that for you, and he did that for me. If we're ever tempted to to want to hide from God, let's just keep in mind that that is what God has done for us. He loves us so much that he did that to bring us back to him. The God of the universe became a man so that he could serve you and me. And he has served us with a level of love and devotion that we can barely even comprehend. But just as Jesus served, he also calls us to be servants. Again, during the Last Supper, Jesus said these words, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Philippians 2 uh, begins with a list of attributes that Paul expects Christians to have. Christians are united with Christ. They have an awareness of his love from which they take comfort. They are filled with the Holy Spirit and so on. But then he says, make my joy complete. In other words, there's just one more thing. On top of all that, there's just one more thing. So be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. 
Be of one mind with Christ. Be of one mind with one another. Be united under Christ. He says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition. Well, what might that look like for us? Well, it can take many forms. Lying or manipulating others to get what we want or avoid consequences. Taking credit for someone else's work or ideas. Ignoring or neglecting our responsibilities or commitments to pursue our own interests and hobbies. Being stingy or greedy with our money and not helping those in need. Pursuing a promotion at work by undermining our colleagues. There are so many examples we could give. Unfortunately, selfishness comes quite naturally to us. We need to keep fighting against it. We need to keep fighting against that proclivity to be selfish. And Paul introduces this idea of putting others before ourselves. Verses 3 to 4. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not look into your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. These are the conditions under which human relationships flourish. Uh, in fact, I often uh, use this verse for marriage preparation. But it only works if both people in the relationship or all the people in the church are putting others before themselves. If it's one-sided, then somebody or a group of people just get burnt out and exhausted. But if both people, if it, whether it's a marriage or a friendship or a church, whether both people or all the people put others before themselves, that is how human relationships flourish. But it only works if it's happening both ways. And this is very countercultural. We live in a cultural that's, uh, sorry, a culture that says it's all about me, my needs, my wants, my aspirations, and above all, my happiness. The slogan for our culture could be, do whatever makes you happy. C.S. Lewis wrote an article titled, We Have No Right to Happiness. We Have No Right to Happiness. That title alone would be enough to make some people bristle. Uh, this is how it begins. After all, said Claire, they had a right to happiness. We were discussing something that once happened in our own neighborhood. Mr. A had deserted Mrs. A and got his divorce in order to marry Mrs. B, who had likewise got her divorce in order to marry Mr. A. And there was certainly no doubt that Mr. A and Mrs. B were very much in love with one another. If they continued to be in love, and if nothing went wrong with their health or their income, they might reasonably expect to be very happy. It was equally clear that they were not happy with their old partners. Mrs. B had adored her husband at the outset, but when he got smashed up in the war, but then he got smashed up in the war, it was thought he had lost his virility, and it was known that he had lost his job. Life with him was no longer what Mrs. B had bargained for. Poor Mrs. A, too. She had lost her looks and all her liveliness. It might be true, as some said, that she consumed herself by bearing his children and nursing him through the long illness that overshadowed their earlier married life. You mustn't, by the way, imagine that A was the sort of man who nonchalantly threw a wife away like the peel of an orange he'd sucked dry. Her suicide was a terrible shock to him. We all knew this, for he told us so himself. But what could I do, he said. A man has a right to happiness. I had to take my one chance when it came. I'll stop there, but 
it's a very interesting article in short. We do not have a right to do whatever makes us happy if what makes us happy makes someone else miserable. We are called to be servants. We are called to live in a way that benefits and blesses the people around us. People who are focused on selfish ambitions often have a particular goal in mind, but it's the wrong goal. Our number one ambition in life ought to be to become more like Jesus, to become less selfish and more servant-hearted. I don't know about you, but the more I scrutinize my life, the more I realize that I've got a very long way to go with this. Jesus, who was and is God, has showed us what a perfect life of service looks like, and he's called us to serve him and the people around us. Verses 9 to 11 remind us that Jesus was humbled, but then he was exalted to the right hand of the Father. And the day will come when everyone will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And on that day, those who know and love Jesus and have served him will also be raised up, although that is never the motivation for the things that we do or the way that we live. The irony is, those whose main goal in life is their own happiness are rarely and possibly never truly happy. The happiest and most fulfilled people you will ever meet are those who have made serving others their goal. Jesus was and is God. He is also the perfect example of humanity. That means that he is the most fulfilled person who ever lived. Jesus is the most fulfilled person who ever lived. And he was when he walked the earth. We would do well to reorder our priorities and follow his example of servanthood. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize uh, that we all struggle with selfishness, putting our own needs before the needs of the people around us. But we recognize that uh, also that uh, human flourishing can only come when we all put others first and everyone is doing that within a, within a marriage, within a friendship, within a community. We pray, Lord, that you help us to be servant-hearted, remembering just what you gave up for us, that we might be prepared to set aside our own needs to look out for the needs of others. This is very challenging teaching, but it is the best way to live in your world. We're convinced of that and we pray that you help us. In Jesus' name, amen.